It's coming up to 7 a.m. on Wednesday, the 5th of March, 1879. And Cole Porter, Henry Wheatley, and his assistant are making their way to work as the early morning fog slowly begins to lift. The sun is already breaking through the fog, bringing a welcome warmth to Henry's shoulders on this crisp spring morning. His horse-drawn coal cart clatters gently along the path skirting the banks of the River Thames, just past Barnes Bridge in southwest London. The early morning sunlight glints off the slick, muddy banks as the tide ebbs out. Henry squints, seeing something else catching the sunlight. There, in the mud at the river's edge, lies some kind of wooden box, the water lapping gently at it. Henry slows his horse, bringing the cart to a stop, and hops down to investigate further, leaving his assistant with the cart. The Thames is notorious for throwing up odd and nefarious wares at high tide, and Henry half wonders if this box may contain the proceeds of a burglary he could claim some kind of reward for finding. He makes his way carefully across the mud and, reaching the water's edge, he examines the box. It's a relatively plain wooden affair with brass catches and it's bound with some kind of cord. One of the handles is missing and it looks as though it's been in the water for a couple of days. Keen to look inside, Henry pulls it up to dry ground and then gives it a kick to test its hinges. The box falls apart easily, spilling its contents onto the ground and revealing a number of packages of meat, all individually wrapped in brown paper. Perhaps this box has been lost from a butcher's barge. On closer examination, though, he realises that the packages of meat are not from any kind of animal. They are, quite clearly, human remains. Horrified, Henry leaves his assistant to keep guard of the box and runs for all his worth up the road to Barnes Police Station, fighting the urge to purge his breakfast the entire way. His gruesome discovery will launch an investigation into a case which quickly becomes dubbed the Barnes Mystery. A mystery which, at first at least, has Scotland Yard's detectives baffled. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history.
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Inspector Harbour is on duty at Barnes Police Station when the flustered coal porter comes barging in with his grim tale of body parts discovered by the river. Calling on the services of Dr. Adams, a local physician, Harbour goes to investigate. Having confirmed the macabre find to be true, he quickly arranges for the remains to be transported to the mortuary at Barnes, where the coroner can investigate further. Mr. Thomas Bond is the forensic surgeon brought in to examine the remains and quickly establishes that the parts are all from the same body a female victim just a little over five foot tall. The body parts make up almost a complete frame. One foot is missing, and perhaps most significantly, so is the head, making any kind of formal identification incredibly difficult. Having discovered some dark hair in the armpits and no grey, he makes a guess that the woman was aged somewhere between 20 and 30 years old. Very briefly, police wondered whether the box had been cast out by a medical training facility or was perhaps a prank from a medical student. But Mr. Bond is able to quickly dispel this thought. The parts of the body have been dissected with a blunt instrument, the bones hacked with a standard saw. He can find no evidence of anatomical understanding in the way the parts have been removed. This, he fears, is a far darker act. Perhaps the most gruesome part of the discovery, apart from the brutal and unskilled nature of the dismemberment, is the fact that the flesh has clearly been boiled. There is only one body part which remains undamaged, a portion of the upper thigh, which somehow escaped the boiling treatment. From this, Mr. Bond is able to determine that the victim has been dead for around a week, though no decomposition has set in yet. He puts this down to the cold weather in the past week, and the fact that the parts had likely been thrown into water not long after death. Meanwhile, in a neighbouring area of London, George Court, a manservant to a local homeowner, is busy on his master's allotment, shoveling dung from a large pile to feed the soil. As he goes about his work, he makes a horrifying discovery. A human foot, buried deep within the dung pile. He hurries his find to the local police station, where the desk sergeant tells him to take it to the mortuary in Barnes. This turns out to be the missing foot from the remains found in the Thames. Now, and arguably most importantly, all that the police are missing is the victim's head. 
Police, meanwhile, begin the long and arduous task of making door-to-door inquiries in the areas around Barnes which may have access to the Thames. Their only hope of identifying the body in the box is to find anyone reported missing in the past month. It's thankless work, turning up no clues. No one in the area has seen or heard anything, and nobody is missing. Police think they've caught a break when they learn of a German maid who seems to have gone missing on her way to an interview with a prospective employer. Could she be the unfortunate victim? For now, it's all the police have to go with. Unfortunately, the inquiry is short-lived. The maid is quickly traced to a property in Weymouth, Dorset, where she's taken up a different position. Another dead end for police, and their frustration grows. With news of the discovery of human remains at the river's edge quickly filling the papers, the investigators' luck changes when three men turn up at the police station in Richmond with some concerns they can no longer keep to themselves. John Church, a bar owner, Henry Porter, a painter, and William Hughes, a solicitor, arrive with a collection of accounts of events and physical evidence which they believe will point police to both the victim and the killer. Inspector Pearman is the officer to take the details. First, Porter tells Inspector Pearman of a former neighbour who recently turned up unannounced at his house. A tall, strong woman with a sallow complexion dotted with freckles. He thought she looked much the same as when they'd last laid eyes on her, only she was dressed in far finer clothes. He and his wife knew her as Kate Webster when she'd lived next door and last saw her when she left to take a job as a housemaid for a lady in Richmond. In that time, she claimed to have married and since been widowed. She now introduced herself as Mrs. Thomas to her old neighbours. Happy to see her looking well, the porters invited her in. Kate apparently told the porters that she recently inherited a comfortable house in Richmond from a deceased aunt and she had some furniture to sell so that she could afford to return home to her native island. She asked if Henry was able to find a reputable broker for her to sell the goods to. Henry tells Inspector Pearman that at the end of the evening, she asked him and his son Robert to walk her back home to number two Vine Cottages in Richmond. Young Robert helped to carry her bag, a large black leather affair which was quite heavy. On the way, they stopped in a couple of pubs to rest and find refreshments. And in one of those pubs, Kate excused herself for about 20 minutes, saying she needed to meet a friend. Henry noticed that she'd taken the heavy bag with her, but didn't have it when she returned to the pub. She claimed to have given it to the friend she'd met. Kate later asked if Henry's son, Robert, would come back to the house with her, as she had another item she needed some help to move. Nothing much was made of it, and when Robert returned the next morning, he simply told his father he had helped Kate carry a heavy box to Richmond Bridge, and that on going back to her house, they had shared a drink and he had slept in the lounge. Apparently, several days later, young Robert Porter was reading the newspaper to his mother and came upon the story of the Barnes mystery. 
He recognized the description of a box found on the side of the river containing human remains as being the same kind of box that he had carried for Kate. Could he have accidentally helped her carry such a gruesome treasure? Before any of this, though, Porter says he had approached John Church, one of the men who had accompanied him to the station today, to act as a broker for the furniture Kate wanted to sell. He tells Inspector Pearman that Church has his own concerns to discuss. With senses already tingling from the statement he's received from Mr. Porter, Inspector Pearman now turns to John Church to hear his account. Church runs a wine and beer house down in Richmond called The Rising Sun. He claims he'd never met the woman called Kate Thomas until his friend Porter introduced them. He heard that she had furniture and property to sell and knew that his own home needed better furnishings and that he could sell what he did not need. So he agreed to meet her. He assessed the goods that she had to sell and offered her 68 pounds, the equivalent of at least two years' wages for a housekeeper at the time. Initially, he had no reason to doubt the woman's claim that she had inherited the house, nor that she had every right to sell or remove the items. Why would he? They'd been introduced by a friend, and her story seemed plausible. Until, that is, Kate's neighbour began asking questions about why Mrs. Thomas's furniture was being removed, who had authorised its removal, and indeed, where the widow was. Church claims he noticed how agitated Kate became when he told her, asking, Who is inquiring after me? When she was told it was the neighbour, she replied, Oh, that's my landlady. Church watched on in confusion as the neighbour turned directly to the woman he knew as Mrs. Thomas and asked her, Where is Mrs. Thomas? To which, even more confusingly, she simply replied, I don't know before both women turned and stormed back into their respective houses. Feeling a rising unease about the goods they were removing, Church asked his workers to unload everything from the van again. He remembers the incident clearly, as he had to promise to pay them from his own pocket to do so. Apparently, an increasingly flustered Kate then came out of the house, threw an armful of dresses into the empty removal van, before disappearing herself. When asked why he didn't report his suspicions straight away, Church says he waited a few days, assuming she would come to claim her dresses, which were good quality, and the few items she'd left with him as security. But that never happened. It was only when his wife decided she would make use of the dresses herself, since the so-called Mrs. Thomas had borrowed a sovereign from her too, that things changed. Mrs. Church found a number of items in the pockets of an apron, which she brought to show her husband. A purse, a diary, two handkerchiefs with the name J. Thomas on them, a pair of gloves, and a letter to Mrs. Julia Thomas signed by an E. Menhenick. Aside from the diary, the purse also contained five rings, some stamps, a pencil, and a small comb. Henry Church tells Inspector Pearman that he and Mr. Porter took it upon themselves to go and visit Mr. Menhenick and his wife to try and get to the bottom of who Mrs. Thomas actually was 
where she might have gone, and whether Church was ever likely to see his money again. What they learned in that conversation shocked them both. Apparently, Mrs. Julia Thomas, a friend of the Menhenics for over 10 years, was in her 50s, amiable and good-natured, devoutly religious, and, quite importantly, fairly short. The woman Mr. Church described as being Mrs. Thomas was tall, big, and spoke with a strong Irish accent. This seemed to cause Mr. Menhenick some concern. Church tells the police that Menhenick advised him to talk to Mr. Hughes, a solicitor who represents Mrs. Thomas. He is the third man to attend the police station that morning, and so Inspector Pearman now turns to him for his statement. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Mr. William Hughes claims that he met Church and Porter at Church's house in Hammersmith, where they told him their list of concerns. Hughes' brother is actually Mrs. Thomas's executor, and the brothers have known her for some 30 years. Church showed him the purse his wife found and the rings, which he recognized as two wedding rings, a keeper, a mourning ring, and a dress ring of some sort. Having heard their stories, Hughes says he felt compelled to support these two men and come to the police station with them. Finally, sensing a breakthrough in the gruesome but mysterious case, Inspector Pearman and his officers accompany the men to Mrs. Thomas's property at Two Vine Cottages, Richmond, where they conduct a search. What they discover in that house shocks them all. Not only is the property in a state of great confusion, with furniture piled ready for removal, but there are traces of blood splattered on the walls and floors in various rooms. In their search, police find some charred bones in the ashes in the kitchen grate beneath the large copper boiling pot, as well as some burnt buttons and scraps of house flannel. They also find an axe, a razor, an old carpet bag, a torn nightdress, and a hand lantern. This, coupled with the statements they've already taken from Porter, Church, and Hughes, makes them increasingly fearful that the missing Mrs. Thomas is in fact the unknown victim in the barn's mystery. One of the officers notices that the area around the copper pot in the kitchen is strangely clean, as though it has been freshly whitewashed. When they pull the pot out, Inspector Pearman discovers a fatty substance, which he scrapes off and saves as evidence. Pearman also takes a section of wood from a wall which is heavily stained with blood, and likewise a strip of wallpaper from the top of the stairs. It is clear from the evidence that something terrible has happened in number two vine cottages, and when police talk to the landlady next door, they are assured that the woman claiming to be Mrs. Thomas these past few weeks is none other than Kate Webster, the housekeeper, 
that the real Mrs. Thomas had recently sacked. Webster's guilt is further confirmed when young Robert Porter is brought in to identify the box found in the Thames. He quickly confirms it is the same box he helped Kate carry from the cottage to Richmond Bridge. He tells police they were halfway across the bridge when she told him to go on, as she was meeting a friend there who would take the box from her. As he walked away, Robert says he heard a splash, but thought little of it. When Kate caught up with him, she said all had gone well with the meeting, and the two went back to her house together. The police now have a firm suspect in Kate Webster, but where has she disappeared to? The only lead police have is that, in their search of number two Vine Cottages, they found a letter addressed to Kate Webster from her uncle in Ireland, complete with return address. After a couple of weeks in the dark, police feel the momentum is finally on their side. A small team is dispatched to Ireland to see if Kate Webster has, by any chance, returned to her family home. At the same time, a warrant is issued for her arrest and wanted posters are hung all around the area. When, on the 28th of March, 1879, some 26 days after the murder, police arrive at Kate's uncle's farm in Ireland, intending to ask if he has heard from her or knows where she might be, they are surprised to find her there. Caught completely unawares, Kate, of course, panics and denies any knowledge of a murder. Her uncle, hearing the crime she is accused of and the brutal details of it, is horrified. He tells them to remove her straight away. She no longer has a place in his family. Her struggling Kate is promptly arrested on suspicion of murder and begins the long journey back to London, this time under lock and key. With their suspect now firmly back in Scotland Yard's grasp, the real investigation can begin. What happened to the widow Mrs. Julia Thomas? How was Kate Webster involved? And how much will she tell the police? Throughout the journey back to London, Kate stays calm and relaxed, as though she has nothing to hide, a cunning front, and one expertly delivered. It's a facade not believed by the wider public, however, who, thanks to growing speculation in the papers, have quickly become obsessed with the tale. A female murderer in Victorian times is scandal enough, but for a woman to have carried out such a gruesome and brutal attack and to have disposed of the body in so calculated a manner is simply sensational. Realizing that the game is up, Kate immediately begins trying to shift suspicion from herself. Even on the journey back to London, she asks her arresting officers if they have anyone else in custody for the murder. When they say they don't, she replies that they should have, adding that the innocent should not have to suffer for the guilty. She refuses to expand on her statement, leaving it hanging cryptically in the air, presumably while she tries to think of a way to exonerate herself. Initially, in questioning with the police and in her pre-trial hearing, Kate tries to implicate Mr. Church, claiming that the whole plan was his idea to make money from the widow Thomas's property. 
She says that she and Church had been friends for seven years and that he frequently would call to take her for drinks, suggesting an improper relationship well beyond that of the simple broker Church has thus far presented himself to be. According to her statement, Church had suggested that they put the old woman out of the way. She tells them that on the night of the 2nd of March, she had left him alone in the house briefly and returned to find him murdering her mistress. A canny storyteller, she weaves in small factual details leading up to the events to add credibility to her version. This, coupled with the fact that Church has already admitted to having some of Mrs. Thomas's possessions in his home, means that the police decide to arrest him too. Fortunately for Church, he is a busy and prominent member of the local community and has a watertight alibi for every occasion Kate has used to try to incriminate him. On the night she claims she saw him murder her boss, he was actually chairing a meeting in a local social club. He has more than enough eyewitnesses and plenty of character witnesses to back him up. Kate, on the other hand, has nothing. When her plan to incriminate Church falls apart, Kate switches her story, this time trying to suggest that Mr. Porter is to blame for the sordid affair. By now, however, the police are wise to her tricks. The case against Henry Church is dismissed and no further arrests are made. With this story still attracting unprecedented press attention, the tide of public opinion turns on Kate. She is loudly booed by braying crowds as she is transported from the prison to the courthouse each day for the pre-trial hearing. And there are even reports that some people, so fascinated with this brutal, sensational case, have travelled all the way to Ireland to see the family home where the killer was raised and later arrested. Angry crowds line the street outside the pre-trial magistrate's court, shouting jeers and heckles, hoping to catch a glimpse of the woman some are now calling the female Sweeney Todd. The Times newspaper reports that the courthouse in Richmond was surrounded by an immense crowd and very great excitement prevailed. With all the pre-trial evidence heard, Kate Webster is charged with murder and a criminal trial is set at the Old Bailey for the 2nd of July, 1879. Given the high-profile nature of the trial, the prosecution is led by none other than the Solicitor General, Sir Harding Gifford. Kate Webster has managed to attract the services of a prominent London barrister, Warner Slay, and the case has garnered huge interest from all levels of society. In fact, the Crown Prince of Sweden, the future King Gustav V, even comes to watch at one point. Salacious gossip abounds and morbid fascination is high. Over the course of the six-day hearing, the court and jury begin to piece together how the unfortunate widow, Mrs. Julia Thomas, was murdered and how Kate Webster cynically and coldly calculated to remove all evidence of her and profit from her death. The court hears how Mrs. Thomas was sometimes a harsh employer and struggled to retain servants. It learns that, 
After only six weeks as our housekeeper, the relationship between the two women had deteriorated so badly that Mrs. Thomas gave Kate her marching orders. Friends of Mrs. Thomas tell the court that she was fearful of being left alone with Kate and that a friend moved in to keep her company until Kate was gone. Kate was due to move out of two vine cottages on the 28th of February, 1879, but begged Mrs. Thomas to let her stay until Monday the 3rd of March, claiming it would be too hard to find suitable lodgings over the weekend. Mrs. Thomas reluctantly agreed, a decision which would ultimately prove fatal. Unfortunately, the friend who had been keeping Mrs. Thomas company left on the 28th, leaving the two women alone together for the weekend. On the evening of Sunday the 2nd of March, acquaintances saw Mrs. Thomas arrive at the Presbyterian Church for evening prayers, as she always did. They observed that she seemed agitated and distressed. Her bonnet was askew, and she seemed flustered. They also noticed that she left before the end of the service, before any of them could ask what the matter was. It would be the last time anyone saw the widow alive. A large part of the trial is involved with disproving Kate's accusations against Church and Porter, and a number of witnesses are called to confirm both men's alibis. Kate, for her part, continues to plead not guilty to the murder, maintaining her innocence. A couple of her friends step forward to testify to her good character, but even that does little to dissuade the prosecution, the jury, or the public. Her flimsy defense, her seemingly cold and impassive demeanor, and her growing unpopularity all stand against her. Perhaps the most damning testimony against her, however, comes from a seamstress and bonnet maker called Maria Durden. She tells the courts, under oath, that Kate Webster visited her a week before the murder on an errand for her mistress. While there, she spoke of having to travel to Birmingham to tend to the affairs of an aunt who had passed away, leaving her a property and some valuables to sell. Durden tells the courts that prior to that time, Kate had never really spoken to her and certainly had never shared anything personal. In the context of everything that transpired after that meeting, the prosecution asserts that Kate was simply trying to justify the wealth she had plotted to take from her murderous deeds. Durden's testimony may well have sealed Kate's fate, pointing as it does to a premeditated murder rather than any crime of passion. With the cases for prosecution and defense concluded, the jury retires to consider its verdict. Not even an hour and a quarter later, they return and unanimously convict her of murder. Before the judge pronounces his sentence, he asks Kate if there is any reason she should not be sentenced to death. Thinking quickly, Kate claims to be pregnant. The outcry is forceful, the furore in the court unlike anything seen before. Even the judge comments, after 32 years in the profession, I was never at an inquiry of this sort. Obviously, Kate's claim would need to be validated if she was to avoid the death penalty. And so, in another unusual turn of events, 
the court suggests using an archaic legal mechanism known as a jury of matrons. Twelve women are sworn in from those attending the courts and take Kate into a separate room along with the surgeon, Mr. Bond. They perform an investigation there to determine whether she is in fact pregnant. After only a couple of minutes, they return to the court with the verdict that she is not quick with child. Given the public opinion of Kate and the fact that this jury of matrons was pulled from women already in the court, their finding against Kate is no real surprise to anyone but the suspect herself. With proceedings now at an end, though with Kate still protesting her innocence, the judge sentences her to death by hanging. From her prison cell in Wandsworth, while under constant guard, Kate continues to try to find a way to excuse herself. She makes another statement, this time pointing the finger at a man called Strong, who she claims is the father of her child. She says Strong not only participated in the murder, but was responsible for turning her to a life of crime. An appeal is also submitted on her behalf to the Home Secretary R.A. Cross to grant her a stay of execution. Having considered the evidence submitted, the appeal is overruled. All hope for Kate is now lost. On the 28th of July, the night before she was due to face the hangman's noose, Kate Webster recanted her previous statements against Strong, Church and Porter and finally accepted full responsibility for the murder herself. In her statement, she claimed that she had been in the pub drinking on the afternoon of the 2nd of March and her tardy return had meant that Mrs. Thomas would be late for her church service. The two had argued briefly and Mrs. Thomas had rushed away to her prayers leaving Kate seething. Upon her return later that evening, Mrs. Thomas had gone upstairs and Kate had followed her, rekindling their earlier argument. In Kate's words, it ripened into a quarrel and in the height of my anger and rage, I threw her from the top of the stairs to the ground floor. She had a heavy fall and I became agitated at what had occurred, lost all control of myself and to prevent her screaming and getting me into trouble, I caught her by the throat and in the struggle she was choked and I threw her on the floor. Finally, the truth is out for all to hear. Kate goes on to describe how she set about disposing of the body by dismembering it using the razor and a meat saw and attempting to boil the meat off the bones in the laundry copper. I determined to do away with the body as best I could. I chopped the head from the body with the assistance of a razor, which I used to cut through the flesh afterwards. I also used the meat saw and the carving knife to cut the body up with. I prepared the copper with water to boil the body to prevent identity, and as soon as I had succeeded in cutting it up, I placed it in the copper and boiled it. I opened the stomach with the carving knife and burned up as much of the parts as I could. In hindsight, neighbours admit to hearing an awful thump, like a chair being knocked over, from next door 
and in the days following, noticing a horrible smell coming from the laundry room. But they saw life in the cottage continuing as normal and thought little of it. Washing was hung out and taken in. Deliveries arrived and orders were placed. No one was aware of the brutal and horrific events happening behind closed doors at number two Vine Cottages. No one but Kate Webster herself. Kate Webster is hanged in Wandsworth at 9am on the 29th of July, 1879. Her hangman, William Marwood, uses his new long drop technique to ensure instantaneous death. She is buried in an unmarked grave in the prison's exercise yard. When the black flag signalling her death is raised over the prison walls, a huge cheer rings out from the assembled crowd outside. The Barnes mystery is a case that shook Victorian London. A female murderer, capable of such cold brutality and calculating afterthought, went against everything the Victorians thought a proper woman should be. Details of Kate's drinking, her sexual promiscuity, her history of petty crime, all served to make her an arch-villain in the eyes of the press. Someone whose story would sell more papers than they could have dreamed of, setting an appetite for detailed depictions of the macabre and gruesome. Throughout her trial and subsequent execution, the press printed sensational details of Kate Webster's wickedness, full of the gory details of the horrors that she effected on her mistress. The interest in the case was such that Madame Tussauds, the Waxwork Museum in London, created an effigy of her to give the public the chance to see the Richmond murderess for themselves. Created only weeks after her arrest, and well before she was due to stand trial, the waxwork remained on display alongside other notorious killers like Burke and Hare and Crippin well into the 20th century. Though there is little doubt that Kate Webster was indeed guilty of the heinous crime, hers could be said to be one of the first incidences of trial by media. From the moment of her arrest, she was painted as gaunt, repellent and trampish looking, though many descriptions of her by those who knew her were not so unfavourable. Either way, the case saw the rise of sensationalist and opportunistic journalism with souvenir booklets produced depicting the life, trial and execution of Kate Webster for sale to the baying public. A forerunner, perhaps, of our own tabloid newspapers today. In October 2010, workmen began excavations on a property adjoining a former pub called The Hole in the Wall, just beside Mayfield Cottages, formerly Vine Cottages. The property belongs to the naturalist and broadcaster Sir David Attenborough. During their work, they uncovered a round object, which, on further examination, turned out to be a human skull. Carbon dating of the skull dated it between 1660 and 1880, but the fact that it had been found on top of Victorian tiles placed it closer to the end of the time bracket. 
The skull had fracture marks, consistent with Kate's account of her mistress's fall down the stairs, and was found to have low levels of collagen, consistent with having been boiled. Given everything we now know, the coroner concluded that the skull must be the final missing part of the widow Julia Thomas's dismembered body. The original open verdict on the cause of death was duly amended to asphyxiation and a head injury. With the final piece of the awful jigsaw in place, Scotland Yard could finally say that, through good old-fashioned detective work, solid historical records and modern technological advances, the Barnes mystery was finally solved. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. In the early 1890s, a series of young sex workers die after suffering violent convulsions in Lambeth, South London. At first, their deaths are put down to various causes, such as suicide, heart failure, accidental poisoning, anything but murder. But witnesses report seeing the women in the company of a mysterious, cross-eyed man who claimed to be a doctor and gave each of them medicine to take. Autopsies on the dead women's remains reveal traces of the deadly poison strychnine, and detectives discover a trail of victims leading all the way across the Atlantic to Canada and America. Inspector John Bennett Tunbridge of Scotland Yard believes he knows who the killer is. Now, all he has to do is prove it and stop the deadly Dr. Cream before he kills again. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sean Coleman. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Mm-hmm.